I believe. Help my unbelief. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. There is much that could be said about this account of Jesus casting out a demon from this boy in Mark chapter 9. This morning, however, I simply want to hone in on one part of it. The cry of this worn out, exhausted, and weary father. I believe. Help my unbelief. Most of us know very little about what it must be like to be the parent of a child who is chronically ill, mentally ill, or unimaginably sick because of a terrible demonic possession. I've only heard stories about that particular kind of thing. A chronic illness, you get compassion. You might even get a GoFundMe page. Mental illness, probably not so much. But demonic possession? It is unimaginable. Most of us would wish it was something else. Schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, anything but that. And in fact, if we were really honest, we would say to the parents who believe their child is possessed by a demon, you might be the crazy one. It is, to put it simply, a torment in itself. How did this happen? What did I do to invite this? How did I sin? Did we buy a haunted house? The accusations of friends and neighbor alike would have been overwhelming. We see this today in the very fact that the scribes are arguing with the disciples about this very thing. And though the Gospel writer does not tell us what was the content of their argument, we can guess at it. Why is it that the disciples are so, uh, are so able to cast out demons in the early part of Mark's Gospel? They come back in triumph. Even the demons were subject to us in Your name, they tell Jesus. And they cannot do so now. Jesus had been away showing His glory to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. And these remaining disciples, simple men, are having arguments with the scribes, the legal scholars of their day. It is about as funny as a bunch of Cajuns, no offense to the current Cajuns in here, a bunch of Cajuns having arguments with Supreme Court justices. The accusations must have been fierce. You can't cast out the demon because you are a demon. You can't cast out the demon because you're a bunch of sinners. You can't cast out the demons because you're a bunch of country bumpkins. You're a bunch of idiots. You can't cast out this demon because your Jesus is a fraud. You can't do it because you are, in fact, serving Satan. And, struggle, and the struggle is that these kinds of accusations start to confound you. You get accused enough and you start to believe the accusation. Have any of you ever been accused falsely? I'm not asking for a show of hands. Accused falsely. I know that some of you have. I know personally that some of you have. I have been. And here's what starts to happen when you've been accused falsely. You start to believe the accusations are true. It's a kind of insanity. That is the very nature of the enemy. The word Satan itself means accuser. 
And we believe those accusations. I get the sense from this text that when Jesus asked these disciples, what were you arguing about? They can't even remember. They're so confused. This is why they do not answer. And I say this because I've been there. I've asked in dark moments, am I the jerk here? I'm confused. Sometimes I am the jerk. Let's be clear about that. But sometimes I'm not. One of the first signs of demonic activity is simply this. Confusion. You start to believe lies. You start to become despairing. You start to have odd doubts. Doubts that befuddle you. That lead to an adult, I would even say, insane mind. And I have very little doubt that the disciples were very, very confused on this day. I think they probably even thought that they were insane. But consider this boy's father for a moment. He comes to the disciples tired and weary, defeated, making a last-ditch effort to help his beloved son. And the disciples fail him. They actually fail them, this man and his son. This Jesus that he has heard so much about is not around. He's gone who knows where. And then the legal authorities of the day start casting aspersions. You know why he can't out, they can't cast out the demon, don't you? But he is not so confused as to not be able to answer the Lord's question. He has not forgotten the subject matter of the dispute. I have a a lawyer friend who's argued cases before the Supreme Court, and he says the most important thing you can do before the Supreme Court is don't forget the matter that's under dispute. Don't forget. And this man does not forget. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Just the facts. Think in your heart, though, about the heartbreak of having a son that cannot talk to you, who cannot make himself known or understood. This boy has likely been bruised and bloodied throughout his life. This demon has attempted to throw this boy into fire and drown him in water. Think about this father staying up late at night, agonizing over his son, praying for his son, and not only that, having to keep constant watch, constant vigil. We don't know where the boy's mother is. She might have left. She might be beside herself not knowing what to do. And then think about what this weary, tired man says. Teacher, I brought my son to you. He does not disown this boy. I had no doubt been suggested to him that he might consider doing that. That he might consider simply giving up. And today we would have said, certainly this boy would be better off in more specialized care. It is an utterly hopeless situation. But pay attention here. We read, and he, Jesus, answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And so they did. This is not a response to the father of this boy alone. It is a response to the disciples. It is a response response to the crowd. It is a response to the scribes. It is their faith that is weak. It is their faith that is lacking. 
Most commentators, many commentators, I don't say most, many commentators have gotten this wrong. In fact, I was flipping through ancient commentaries on this. They just get it completely wrong. Sometimes that happens. They believe that this man is being reproved for his lack of faith. He doesn't trust the disciples enough. My question is, is, is Greek your second language? <laughs> Some will say that this father has accused the disciples of not having the power to heal and that he stands accused as being without faith in them. This is terribly wrong. The subject of his answer is, pure, is plural. He answered them. Jesus is answering, in fact, not just one group, the disciples or the scribes or the crowd, but a whole generation born of incredulity. Consider just that phrase for a bit. That was, that was when I was translating some of this. I saw, that's the right word. It's, it's a genera- an unbelieving generation. Another way to put that is a generation born of incredulity. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Looking around, flipping on the news. Incredulity. They will not believe. They will not be rid of their apostasy because the simple truth is that this religion of their own making is preferable to true and living trust in God. I say this to you who are tempted to put your trust in earthly rulers. They will utterly fail you. They will be unable to give the remedy that you seek. I say this to you who trust in Amazon.com. And I say this as a father of a family that prays daily and regularly to Alexa. Jeff Bezos cannot heal you. And I say this to those of you who are tempted to hold out hope in anything but the living God. Hope that things might get better. Hope that poverty might be ended. Hope that sickness might be ended. Hope that really anything might just get a little better. Hope in anything but the living God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, you will be very, very disappointed. You are living as one who stands accused and for good reason. You are living as one without power. Nevertheless, these faithful people or these faithless people that Jesus addresses have the ability, you might even say the authority, to do one thing in this section of Scripture. They have the authority to bring this boy to Jesus, and that is what they do. They bring the boy to Jesus. And look at what happens. I can't put it any better than the 5th century commentator Peter Chrysologus, who writes, though it was the boy who fell on the ground, it was the devil in him who was in anguish. The possessed boy was merely convulsed while the usurping spirit was being convicted by the awesome judge. The captive was detained, but the captor was punished. Through the wrenching of the human body, the punishment of the devil was made manifest. The accuser knows that he is accused and knows that he is accused rightly. When you heard the words of the Gospel this morning, what was apparent? What was obvious to you? What was obvious to me on the first several reads through this is this. 
A poor boy being thrown on the ground. A boy who can't be kept away from fire and water. That's it. Poor kid, I said. I did not see the devil in torment. I did not see a demon quaking in fear. You see, this is precisely what happens. A people of faith, a people of trust in God, do not see that this world is being judged, that the devil himself is being judged. We, in a twisted kind of apostasy, only see the suffering and not what underlies it very often. The people of God are supposed to see what is hidden. To see what is not obvious. Because they are to see with new eyes, with the eyes of faith, to see what is hidden. To see what has not been revealed to others. These have faith. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. But here is the great and terrible problem. You and I are not particularly faithful, are we? But we're not particularly unfaithful either. We are not convinced believers. We are not unconvinced doubters. We live life in the paradox of unbelieving belief, of unconvinced conviction, of unassured assurance. That is the way of things. And you might protest, not me, not I. I am not that way. I am a fully convinced believer. There's not a single ounce of doubt in me. And I would simply ask you, what if you had a son who was possessed by a demon? Would not your unbelief be made manifest? What if you lost everything? What if you stood accused of a crime that you did not commit? What would become of your faith then? Christians have always taught that there is a difference between faith and presumption, as vast as there is in the difference between faith and doubt. In other words, presumption is as damning as doubt, if not more so. Friends, I've heard many Christians talk about a kind of doctrine of assurance that is little more than the presumption that one is saved merely by the fact that sometimes I feel good things. Sometimes I have more faith than doubt. Sometimes I kid myself into thinking that I am entirely believing. What is missing is this. That faith is a gift. Faith is a grace. It is a gift that is given to us. It does not originate with human willpower or intellect. It doesn't happen because I say, I want to be more faithful. How can I do that? It also doesn't happen. And I'm probably going from preaching to meddling here. When you scholars sit down at your desk and you say, let's figure this out. It is a virtue that is infused in the soul by grace. It is a great and utterly foreign gift that over time, God willing, will belong to us 
but which will remain a true gift, a true grace, something we could not make. Our own 39 articles state that while it is very sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to the godly to feel in themselves the working of Christ, let me just say that again, I love that phrase. It is a sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to the godly to feel in themselves the working of Christ. That's true. Can we say amen to that? It's wonderful to feel the working of Christ in me. I hope it's wonderful to feel it in you. It's a comfort. It's sweet. It's pleasant. But it's also unspeakable. The articles continue to say that it is a dangerous downfall to have continually before our eyes the sentence of God's predestination. It leads us to desperation on the one hand or into the wretchlessness of most unclean living. I love that, you know, 16th century people could put things in ways that we can't. The wretchlessness of most unclean living. No less perilous than desperation. In other words, the concern expressed here is that while to feel the working of Christ is one wonderful, beautiful thing, a thing of comfort and pleasantness and sweetness, to presume upon it is dangerous. Some become despairing. Their unbelief overtakes their belief. And if they do not begin to feel it more and more, they begin to lose hope. And some of you are saying, I wish I had the same feeling that I used to have when I was first a Christian. Why don't I have that anymore? Have I lost faith? Have I lost hope? Others presume upon their salvation so much that they sin and sin boldly. This is my problem. I think, God's not a meanie. He loves me. So I go do whatever I want. I've heard Christians, like supposedly mature Christians say, don't you talk about the law to me as they're going out to go do all manner of things. Neither, dear friends, is good. No, we must live in that terrifying paradox of being both believer and unbeliever. Of knowing the grace of Jesus and at the same time asking truly and humbly, help my unbelief. And I must add to this that the Anglican answer to this problem stated in Article 17 is this. We must receive God's promises in such wise as they be generally set forth to us in Holy Scripture. And in our doings, that the will of God is to be followed, which we have expressly declared unto us in the Word of God. Which is a wonderful answer. It's just to say, you know what? Don't worry about that. Just receive the promises of God as they're given in Scripture and make all attempts to follow the will of God as it's expressed there. That's it. That's all you can do. It's almost like the KISS method. Do you know the KISS method? Anybody? Keep it simple, stupid. Like just, just, just hear the promises of God in Scripture and then just do your best to do the will of God. Like That's it. Live by grace. This is a way of believing in the promises of God while walking in fear and trembling. A way of faith that leans upon hearing the Word of God and doing it. Exactly the same kind of thing that James is talking about today. A faith that is not apart from works. 
What do we see today from the man who, is, who prays, I believe, help my unbelief? What do we see from this man who weary and worn out and tired, who cannot muster a trite saying of faith and is told by Jesus that all things are possible for the one who believes. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He's happy to live in that paradox. And what happens? His son is delivered not on account of his faith, but because he has been content to ask for help, for grace, for his unbelief. In the end, Jesus remarks upon this demon and the disciples who could not cast that demon out. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This boy was as good as dead. They thought he had no more spirit left in him after this evil spirit had been cast out. And Jesus shows the power of his divine life by making this demon tremble at the very prospect of judgment and condemnation. And he shows the power of his incarnation, the power of his resurrection by taking this boy by the hand and what? Raising him up. We read this, Jesus took him by the hand. Ancient commentators love this. They're like, that is a reference to the incarnation. He took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. Jesus lifted and the boy arose. What a wonderful phrase. And not at all detached from the rest of the New Testament witness. Should be reminded this morning of the words of Paul. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he says, heck no. That's the literal translation. How can we who died to sin continue in it any longer? For as many of you who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized in also into his death. And if you have been baptized into a death like his, you will certainly be raised in a resurrection like his. How on earth do we hope to be lifted up from the blaze and mire of sin and death by our own power? We know that it is impossible. I cannot save myself. I cannot believe in myself sufficiently to save myself because I don't get it. I am insane and I am accused. What can lift me up from the malaise, the insanity and mire of sin and death, but the lifting of Jesus? By what power do we hope to be saved, but by the power of his glorious resurrection? But beloved, hear me closely. Jesus does not lift us up that we might fall. Jesus lifts that we might arise. There are graces which today are not operative in you, not because they are not graces, not because they are not powerful, but because you do not arise. I'm going to say more about what this arising is. Thinking today of the words of Isaiah, that day by day, morning by morning, you awaken me. 
speaks as being one who is taught because every morning God wakes him up to pray. We come together today to receive literally the grace of participation in the risen body and blood of Jesus. A grace first given to us in baptism and continually given to us in this sacrament. To receive a new breath in our lungs and receive a life which we cannot have by nature. And there is more grace in one drop or one crumb than you and I can possibly imagine. More glory, more gift, more power. I was thinking this morning, you know, that wonderful Einstein equation, E equals MC squared. Do you know what this means? It means that the energy contained in one mass is that of the mass times the universal constant <laughs> squared. Every single atom in creation has boundless energy. How much so with the Eucharist? How much more so here? At this, the demons cannot help but shrivel and shiver and recoil. I think if you knew how much demons hate the Eucharist, you might take it more seriously. I know I would. Demons hate the Eucharist because they're apostate. They cannot have fellowship with God. And yet you and I do eat. We do drink. But why, you might ask, is this power not made obviously and undeniably manifest? Why am I still so powerless against sin? Why am I still so powerless against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Why am I not even now the saint that the Lord has made me to be? And I say again, Jesus is lifted. You have arisen, but have not arisen. You have believed, but have not been made an appeal, but have not made an appeal for help against unbelief. What kind of a rising is shown forth here? Is it not the daily, morning by morning, arising of prayer through which the Christian is taught? If you want to be holy, if you want to be more than an unbelieving believer, one who is more than convicted and yet unconvinced, all must be undertaken in prayer. Prayer is the key. Daily prayer is the beating heart of the spiritual life. Without prayer, everything else is powerless. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.